You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, a banger, something that bumps continuously. And today, we take our first trip together into the majesty of Curtis Mayfield by tackling his 1973 album, Back to the World. What do you write after the last thing you wrote, a socio-political, soul-funk, paradigm-shifting stroke of genius blows you up, sells two million singles, Mm. and in the words of critic John Bush, ignites an entire genre of music, the Blaxploitation soundtrack. No pressure. If you're Curtis Mayfield, you continue to do the work you've been doing, that of a sonic mandated court reporter, speaking for the disenfranchised, the underrepresented, Off Maligned, The Trouble Man. Shout out to Marvin Gaye. In the case of 1973's Back to the World, The Troubled Man was the veteran, fresh from combat and placed back in a world that was desolate and dire. The album's cover art juxtaposes images of faith, flags, and black Americans who it seemed God forgot to bless. Across seven tracks, he imagines their plight, and in what would become typical of him, he shared his impressions. Though not technically a soundtrack, it felt like one. A concept album of sorts called Good Morning After Vietnam. Just like always, the great Curtis Mayfield channeled the weary years and silent tears of a race and in his glorious church-trained falsetto became inner-city griot for we the people who are darker than blue. Back to the World was the album pick of our guest today, Bay Area MC, singer slash actor slash talent extraordinaire, Lyrics Born. And I still remember when I was but a wee lad 25 years ago (laughs) plus when Jeff Chang handed me a 12-inch that had DJ Shadow on one side and an artist named Asia Born on the other. That was my introduction to Tom Shimura, who switched up his nom de plume to Lyrics Born, and ever since has stomped out a monster of a career that's included over a dozen studio albums and mixtapes, plus his 2016 Greatest Hits compilation entitled Now Look What You've Done, which I had the good fortune to help write the liner notes for. It has been a marvel to follow his success over the past quarter century and a delight to have him here in person. Lyrics Born, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. As Morgan just said, this is the first time we've actually had an opportunity to dig into Curtis Mayfield. And for me, I'm really excited by this because besides working on your lighter notes in the summer of 2016, the other thing that I spent a lot of time doing was reading the first, to me, definitive biography of Curtis Mayfield entitled Traveling Soul, which was written by one of his sons. And as a byproduct of that, listening to a ton of Curtis solo stuff and, of course, stuff that he recorded with the impressions. And if I had gone into the experience prior to that, thinking of Curtis as being a very important soul figure, I left that summer feeling convinced that he was absolutely in the same pantheon 
of your Stevies, your Marvins, mm-hmm. your Aretha's, mm-hmm. you know, at least of all the 1960s and 70s. And before we dig into the album specifically, I'm just wondering if we, if we can just go around the horn here for a sec and just talk about if you remember how you first encountered Curtis and Tom, let's start with you. And was this the album that was this the gateway for you or, you know, how did you first come across Mayfield? You know, I think that's interesting because as an up and coming hip hop artist, when I was coming up in the late 80s and the early 90s as a teenager, it was the era of sampling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously Curtis Mayfield was heavily sampled. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I came, I started rapping probably junior high or high school. And there was, we used to record in this, when I got to Berkeley High as a freshman, I was recording in uh, a place called the Onion Lab, which was, the guy's name was Onion, and okay. he and he had a little home studio in the basement in Berkeley. God, I love Berkeley. Yeah, and um, and a guy named there were two. They they these were my mentors. They were all uh, they were all seniors. I was a freshman. There was a guy named Kingpin Roski. He was probably <laughs> shout to Mark. He was probably the best rapper in Berkeley. Okay. at the time. Okay, and then there was a guy named Mac Mill, who was the best rapper in Oakland at the time, probably. And they did an album down there. It came out on vinyl, all independent, of course. And yeah. the and uh, one of the songs was called "Straight Dangler," and it was like <laughs> it was like in like one, one of those late '80s songs about a crackhead. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And they sampled "Future Shock" off this album. <laughs> So that was my first introduction to Curtis Mayfield. And at the time, I was so young. I was like, oh, that's funky. Beyond that, I didn't have any really any critical assessment of it beyond that. It wasn't until I started producing myself Mm -hmm. and uh, delving deeper into his catalog and really listening to it that he's my top two artists of all time. You know, all time. Who's the other one? Probably James Brown. Okay. Yeah, James Brown and Curtis. And they're very, they're very different. But, very. But they completely reshaped what we thought of funk and soul music in that era. They did. They yeah. did. And, and you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I think of Curtis as no less than a prophet. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he's like, mm-hmm. he's, he, as my wife calls him, he's anointed. You mm-hmm. know, if you talk about Bob Marley, yeah, you talk about Stevie Wonder. And you, you have to talk about Curtis Mayfield because he made this, for better or for worse, lifelong commitment to enlightening people, mm-hmm. you know, and just sort of this, he was on this, you know, lifelong, career-long journey to try to sort out all these difficult problems, you know, and he did it in a very understated, quiet way, you know, and... uh well, he wasn't a pop artist, you know, right. and I think he, he was another reason why I found him so inspiring. He was an ind- a career independent artist, I believe. I think well, maybe some of his '80s stuff was um, was major right. label, but but his '70s stuff. Once he created Curtom, I mean, that was his label, you know, his control, right? Yeah. And myself as a career independent artist, yeah. you know, I just I just put out my tenth album, you know, and I've never I, I know what that feels like. And I can probably understand some of the things that he went through. I mean, he had tremendous success. Let's not get it wrong. Right, right. 
he didn't have the machine that maybe his contemporaries did, right. you know, and maybe that was for the better because of, of the, the sort of literal and figurative voice that he had, yeah. you know, I went back and I listened to this album quite a bit and I, it just, everything is there. It's like everything you need to learn about life, mm-hmm. you know, or in those albums, mm-hmm. you know, but particularly this one for yeah. now, you know. How about you, Morgan? What was your first encounter, if you remember, with Curtis? Yeah, my father. My father would sing Keep On Pushing. He would hum that. My dad's got a pretty good voice, and so he would always be humming the chorus. And so my my introduction was the impressions. So fast forward uh, to 2014, uh, I was able to place that song in Selma. And it was a great moment for me wow. and a great moment to be able to share with my dad that mm-hmm. uh, I was able to put that song in there. Uh, it was pricey, uh, <laughs> but, but, but uh, praise God we snuck it in there. Okay? <laughs> right. uh, but, but we had to, and it's a scene after Martin Luther King you know, speaks to the crowd you know, after the death of the young man, and he's like, give us the vote, give us the vote. And then he walks out into the hallway and some young men gather around him, sort of volunteer. And the thing is, like, you know, keep on pushing. And so it, it was a great moment. So that's how I came to know mm. Curtis Mayfield. And then later on um, got into Superfly because my uncle, um, the one that, you know, I had both an uncle and an aunt that loved the Lord, but I just didn't spend a lot of time with him. <laughs> and uh, that particular uncle, um, he would play Superfly and he would always play uh, Eddie should have known better. Eddie is everybody's friend. But sometimes you wonder now and then. The only time he chooses you when there's something to lose through his personal loss. And the friend pays the cost all the time. And I thought that song was beautiful. I was too young to really understand the words, but I just, even as a kid, I was like, this is a gorgeous song so that was my introduction Mm, yeah what about you it had to have been superfly only because that was such a big mega hit Mm -hmm. um it was inescapable obviously been sampled to death as tom was saying earlier but i think what really hammered home my interest in curtis so not just a mere introduction but really wanting to dig into his work was really the two late 60s albums that he recorded mm. um, when he was still with the Impressions, which were uh, This Is My Country mm-hmm. and Young Maud's Forgotten Story, which effectively were kind of more or less like a double album but split into into two because they were recorded so close to one another and, mm. and they, they really fit together well thematically and musically. And those two albums rank amongst two of my favorite soul albums of all time. Mm. And it's not to take anything away from Mayfield's solo years, which are also, uh, as we'll discuss, incredible, but just in terms of, you know, when you're listening, there are a few things that sound more sublime than hearing Curtis alongside the voices of Fred Cash and Ooh. Sam Gooden vocalizing in harmony. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Keep on trying. Um, so let's bring this back to Back to the World. And you've already started talking about this a little bit, uh, you know, just a moment ago. But what makes this a heat rock to you? Why did you want to talk about this album? Because we could have talked about Superfly. I and mean, there's a lot of yeah. Mayfield stuff we could have gotten into. Of course. Yeah, sure. of course. This one. Um, I just felt like 
that opening song back to the it's so troubling you mm-hmm. know and it's so bittersweet when he details the story you know of this guy who's been in vietnam yeah and he gets home and you know in the lyrics he says he goes sees his mother and his mother's like i'm glad you're home mm-hmm. you know they answer my prayers you made it your woman's gone it's just sad you know mm-hmm. it's like we didn't win the war right you got no job, you know, it's like it's, it, there's, it's just poverty everywhere, you know. It's like you, you came and you went through this situation, which now we know when we see our family members or our friends' family members, they came back, a lot of them, like in my family and in my friends' family, a lot of them came back, they had drug problems, they sure. had really severe PTSD, they couldn't function in the world, you know. And this is what you come back to, you know, and you got to, you come back to, uh, and you, you and a lot of times, these kids didn't even sign up for it. They were drafted into this war, you know. very complex era that was before our my time you know definitely in our generation's time but i see the fallout you know in a lot of my family members and in a lot of my um friends family members and it's just it's just really and and the thing that makes this song and curtis's song so powerful is that if you were to just strip away his vocal this could be like a couple walking down the steps after just getting married. You know, this is a beautiful LUT with all these crazy arrangements right. and it's, you know, major key. It's beautiful. It sounds so nice. And But then when he sing, he puts his vocal over it. It's so sad, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it, it just sort of it, those two things rubbing up against each other. You know, it really makes it powerful. father's a Vietnam veteran Mm. and uh, we were having a conversation about a year ago and he said I hope you can help me with this I'm trying to track down an article that was in the LA Times Mm. of me when I came home from Vietnam because he touched down at March Air Force Base in Riverside uh, October the 19th 1968 and he said I said well how how will I look it up and he said well the tagline is and there was nobody there to greet him. Mm-hmm. And so when I was getting prepared for this, I thought, gosh, this is the part of war that I think, especially the Vietnam War, as we know, it was an unpopular war. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff written about um, African-American veterans, what they mm-hmm. suffered, and uh, sort of the tease, if you can put it that way, of being um, integrated in the war, mm. integrated in trauma, and then coming back to being segregated again and having all these things taken right. away from him. At them, he was in the Air Force, and so it was part and parcel of what he did. Mm. But he also, you know, was one of the people 
in, in the war that ha- had a college degree, um, was leaving a family behind, and yet it's a thing in his life that he doesn't really talk about. He's not an emotional man, and I've never seen him get emotional, except uh, when thinking about the war. Mm. And so this song, Back to the World, has some resonance for me because I can only imagine right. without being able to talk to him because he's a pretty cool dude and he doesn't, um, he's not stoic, but he just doesn't really, I, I just don't think people want to talk about this. Yeah. Um, and so Curtis Mayfield served a purpose right. in speaking for those men, particularly African-American men mm-hmm. that were coming back to a world that wasn't happy to to have them back and didn't recognize them for their service. That's. I mean, that's exactly right. You know, and I mean, I think, and think about it like this, coming off of a double platinum album, Is this really the direction that most (laughs) artists would go in? (laughs) You know, but that's how committed he was to truth. You know, that's how committed he was to this. That he had, he was on a mission. You know, it wasn't. This wasn't like a a a plan that okay. I I just I don't I don't feel like that. This was um. This this is just. It's it's so ingrained in who he is that he has to tell these stories. You know, whether he sold a million copies or whether he sold 10,000 copies, you know, but it does actually explain why, like, if you listen to that song, the the opening song, it's six and a half minutes long, you know, there's maybe two minutes of vocals. So it's real soundtracky on its own. So maybe coming off of Super, Superfly. He had some of the production ideas in his head. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, when, when I talk about him as a writer, um, those are the things that kind of really do it for me. But as a musician oh. and as a composer oh. and as a producer, I mean, like I said, just take him out of the song for yeah. a minute and just listen to the just listen to the arrangements and how lush they are and how how beautiful and complex they are, you know. And he's it's, never he's never mentioned uh, or he's rarely mentioned these days when people talk about their favorite composers. Mm-hmm. You usually get John Williams and Hans Zimmer. Right. And people don't go back that far. Right. That Curtis Mayfield is a composer. Yeah. Superfly is a score. This is a score. Yeah. To me, Curtis is a score. Yeah. yeah. Um, Exorcist is, is a score. Sweet Exorcist Sweet is a Exorcist. score. Yeah. So he is a composer, and I think he needs to be credited as, as such. I mean, I... It's he's brilliant. I mean, there's no other way to. Re- I, I just wish he was alive today. I wish we could speak to him about mm. his process and, right. you know, like his sort of frame of mind when he was making these albums. You know, I'm also thinking of how I'm trying to think of any other artist of his stature, yeah. of his prominence, that was also as equally committed to politics in his music. So, I mean, obviously, this album has examples on it. Um, some of the previous ones. One of my other favorite of his solo albums from this mid-70s era is There's No Place Like America Today. Mm-hmm. Just the cover art alone yes. is a statement, like let alone the songs on there. Yeah. and Great covers, by the way. Every, every cover yeah. he had was also a work of art. Yeah, And a lot of artists had maybe that one or two albums where they got really political. But mm-hmm. Tom, to your point, in terms of the level of commitment that yeah. Curtis had yeah. to this, yeah. every album, every album. he every is bringing album. this. Every album. And I I don't think there is a comparison with anyone else that was that overt in saying, whatever I make, I'm going to speak to like the issues of the day. In essence. I, I think the only other artist is Bob Morley. Really? That's, that's, yeah. that's the only, right. other, that was Great as point. prominent. Yes. You know, right, right. that's the only other artist. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Like you, you see how important and just sort of how akin they are when one love is a cover, 
of people get ready yeah. essentially right. you know and it i i didn't realize that until years later you know but one love is a, is oh, bob was heavy into curtis into curtis impressions. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that influence is so so deep. yeah, yeah. You, you can tell by the way bob plays guitar yes how uh curtis affected yes. by by curtis right. he was right. that's know? the other thing not you know thing that things that he doesn't get enough credit for his guitar playing yeah was yeah. really innovative no too. one talks about that yeah you know they don't bring that up I toured with a I've toured with a band for the past ten year, fifteen years, and that was one of the things that the guitar players used to always tell me is that I don't totally understand this because I don't play guitar, but apparently he tunes his guitar to the black keys on the piano, which is mm. on you, which was he self taught, so he did that, and and as a result, it creates all these different pathways or mm. approaches to how you would write music, you know. Every guitar player I know, particularly guys that are big into wah yeah. and rhythm, they say Curtis is one of their favorite guitar players. No, no doubt. Curtis Mayfield is committed to songs that have keep on in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep on there keeping on, keep on pushing, right. uh, keep on tripping. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Curtis for yeah. consistency. <laughs> Uh, Keep on tripping is one of my favorites um, on the album. Mm -hmm. It's vulnerable without beating you over the head with vulnerability. I think he's able to do that because of his voice. His voice. It sneaks up on you. And by the time you realize what he's saying, you're like, what did he just say? Um, And this is him talking about, listen, I'm trying to bond with you. Um, I like this tender moment with you. I don't know what you're smoking. I keep on tripping. For me, that's my fire track off the album. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Lyrics Born on Curtis Mayfield's 1973 Back to the World after a brief word from a couple of great MaxFun podcasts. Don't go anywhere. Not all heroes wear capes. Some heroes watch war movies and then review them. Friendly Fire is a war movie podcast for people who don't necessarily like war movies, although it does not exclude people who love war movies. I'll have you know that I am wearing a cape. My cape is just made of sound-deadening material from an audio recording studio. (laughs) It's a really great show. John's daughter doesn't like it because we sometimes say swear words on it, but almost everybody else that has ever listened to it has enjoyed the, the program. Download and subscribe to Friendly Fire wherever you get your podcasts. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Welcome back to WKEP at night. Up next, looks like we've got a PSA from local forest ranger Duck Newton. Do I start now or? Yeah, I lean in, Doc. Yeah, sorry. Um, okay, I, I wanted to address the unfortunate situation that. Okay, listen, two people, good people that I and a lot of y'all have known our whole lives are dead, torn to shreds a by a savage, uh, bloodthirsty beast that defies human comprehension. If you'd like to know more, stop by the Cryptonomica, Kepler's premier museum of the macabre, just off uh, Highway. Come, come on, we just wanted to warn y'all to to beg you. If you see one of those things out in the forest, don't fight. Don't scream. Run. 
Run as far as you can. Doc, it's almost midnight. Listen, folks, if you see anything, please go to thelamplighter.org and let us know. And get behind a locked door tonight. Anything else we need to... Oh, they're leaving. Okay, well, that's thelamplighter.org, and stay safe out there, Kepler. Hello, Heat Rockers. We have a very special announcement about our next live show. It is coming up in just two days on Saturday, February the 9th at Zebulon, which is here in Los Angeles in Atwater at 6 p.m. Our show is going to be free and we could not be more excited to invite special guest Guy Branham. Yes, the host of Maximum Fund's own Pop Rocket podcast is going to be our special guest talking about one of his favorite albums and we're going to keep that under wraps for now. But again, this is going down Saturday the 9th of February, Zebulon in Atwater, 6 p.m. The show is free and if you want to get more information, just go to our website at heatrockspod.com. Hope to see you all there. We are back on Heat Rocks, talking about Curtis Mayfield's Back to the World with our guest, Barrier recording artist, Lyrics Born. Playing all the clothes you wear Laughing me, pressed clean and no care Right on for the darkness one detail that I never had thought about, but I, I learned from reading the, the biography I mentioned earlier, is that one reason why Curtis decided to leave the Impressions, who have, you know were at the height of their success, really, when he decided to go solo in the late 60s, early 70s, it wasn't because he wasn't getting along with Fred or Sam. I, as far as I know, there was no internal beef, but because he was the primary songwriter for the group. Because he had to write the vocals and the harmonies for his two other bandmates, he felt like it limited his creativity in his songwriting. Mm. And so he went solo partially because he didn't want to have the burden of having to write for other voices mm. so that he could just focus on his own voice and, mm. by greater extension, his own messages. Sure. Which yeah. I thought was like, sure. whoa, that was a huge insight. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about him and about in, in great, great songwriting in general is that a great writer and vocalist, they start the conversation by what they do on the record. We as listeners continue the conversation and finish it in our minds. Mm. You know what I mean? So when he says, um, God, what song is it? Uh, oh, Right On For The Darkness. He's like... I mean, think about that. You know what I mean? Think about that. It's like I'm blind. And I cannot see. And it's so it's so much deeper than baby uh, saying, is we done or right. is we finished? Where right. everyone was like, wait, what, fool? Right. This is some deep, like, next level. It's just very deep. And, and, and you know, there's so much space yeah. in his vocals that it really draws you in. I used to go to these Japanese rock gardens. My mother used to take me when I was a kid. You know what I mean? I'm like, what am I looking at here? There's two things in this entire, you know, there's a big rock right there in the corner. And then there's some wavy ass sand. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you have no choice. You have to look at those things. Sure. You know, the, the purpose is that you're supposed to really look at those things and absorb that beauty and just sort of be in that. Mind. And that's what he does. That's what he does so brilliantly, you know? 
I'm sorry to take us on this tangent, but the, yeah. this this is the right place to mention this, which is in doing research uh, for today's talk, I came across, and Morgan, maybe you did too, the 1973 review of the album, the original review in Rolling Stone. Did you read this review? Yo. Okay. Okay. So, you go right uh, ahead. Of, of this I, album? Yeah. Yes. There was a, a Rolling Stone review. Yeah. Yes. Back in, a long review. So back in 73. I mean, you got to remember, this is after Superfly. Right. So at this point, Curtis is huge. Right. So the author's name was Stephen Davis. And he wrote, as as everyone here has noted, that this he said that this album felt more like a soundtrack than Superfly. So he's bringing attention to the ways in which this feels like a soundtrack. Mm. But Davis went as far as to write his review, coming up with a fictional movie plot and characters based <laughs> on the album. And so it begins with a returning Vietnam War, you know, vet, yeah, yeah. and who ends up leading a gang of or a group of other vets to take over or challenge the corrupt Chicago cops who are running the dope game in Chicago. And so him and his, his crew sort of muscle in on this. And when the police try to off him, they end up not killing him, but blinding him. Yeah. And so the writer, Davis writes that right on for the darkness is literally a blind person writing about how they're blind, which is perhaps <laughs> just a touch too literal, but I give dude credit for just taking it there with the review. He yeah. did. He did. I went back and forth. I was like, is this problematic? <laughs> like de- deep in the review, I was like, I, I feel some type of way about this <laughs> because funny. I don't mind you taking creative license, but yeah. are you going too far with this thing? Like, But I've also never seen a review like that. I was like, yo, what's but, been said here? Is but, this a black exploitation review? But you, but you know what? In its own way, that plays exactly into what i was saying was that right he's such a exactly. great writer right. he's curtis starts the conversation but this guy clearly finished it in his own way yeah, you know what did. i mean so that but that's the beauty of great writers you know of any genre is like they spark this and y- y- you know the thing about curtis is he'll he'll give you his phrase and then he'll give you the response and you're hanging on every word and while it's happening it, at least for me it's like I'm thinking about all this stuff and sure. it's stirring up all these other ideas, you know, that that it, that this one line may connote or, you know what I mean? It's, right, right. No discussion of Curtis Mayfield would be complete without talking about the samples. For a lot of people, samples were the gateway drug to get into Cur- Curtis Mayfield, right? On this album, he was sampled crazy. Mm. In fact, on Right On For The Darkness, that's been sampled 34 times. Wow. 34 times. That we know of. That we know right. of. That that, that yeah. uh, the website was able to cover. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. So the ones that we know are Glasshouse, Wiz Khalifa, featuring Currency and Big Crit. Take a rest, Gangstar. And then Mace, too. Was that Mace in total? Yes, what you want. Tell me what you want from me. Take a look at what you see. Which to me was the first time I really, really remember this particular sample from Right On For The Darkness yeah. because they just really take the best pop elements of yeah. Curtis's original composition arrangement and just amp it up to a whole new level with that shiny, you know, puffy, puffy steez. Yeah. Um, but I was surprised to learn that, and, and actually this, I think might 
go back to your point, Tom, that you know you you knew people who were well, actually, I guess they were sampling Future Shock, yeah. but back in like the late eighties. Mm. And one of the earliest samples that I found for Right On for the Darkness was another Barrier record by Filthy Phil. Do you remember Filthy Phil? I don't. Out of Richmond. Wow, what year? Nineteen ninety. Oh wow! Using the basically the same exact <laughs> loop that Puffy would use for total? You know, eight and years later for wow. information total. Mm. Saw a dog sitting in the coop now. I said, what's up, he? Pimpin' the what? He said, hush, he been on the grind all night. These forming line, cause the candy was right. I said, cool, I'm finna go to the mini mart to get a brew. I seen the crew at the park. I said, what's up, man? Speaking of Future Shock, Cypress Hill sampled it for something for the blunted. Yes. UGK, Pinky Ring, 1998. Let's see, Can't Say Nothing was sampled by uh, El Sensei on In the Lab. Man, a lot of samples, and as a music supervisor, I can just pray and hope <laughs> that those were clear. Well, you know 90% of those were not <laughs> I know they weren't, but I have to say that for integrity, yeah, Okay, uh, just to, to just to have my integrity. And also, uh, uh, Right On For The Darkness was actually covered in 1974 by, by Willie Wright. Mm. you know you must regain all your children Right on. Have you ever thought, or have you actually ever sampled a Curtis song? Have I? I have not. I have not. You know something, though, uh, about 15 years ago, they did like a Curtis tribute album, Mm. and I think like Z-Trip did a remix and like some other. I was so bummed, frankly, and pissed (laughs) that they didn't ask me. I was so pissed that they didn't. I, I think I even offered. I was like, please let me do something. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. Right, yeah, it just never happened, you know. But, no, I never sampled Curtis. And I think, you know, I think for me it was not because I didn't love his music. I just couldn't afford to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, it had nothing. I mean, I would have in a heartbeat, you know. Uh, Let's get into some of the songs on the album, Mm. particularly Future Shock, which is all based on a book called Future Shock by a man who successfully predicted... Uh, the advent of the internet and the end of the nuclear family and future shock is all about, you know, the trauma Mm. of having to adapt to sudden change. Mm. Interesting that Curtis Mayfield would be inspired by that, but what sudden change do you think this album, is he just talking about coming home from war or or, or is there something else? First of all, I didn't know that. Yeah. Who was the author of that Um, book? His name's Alvin Troffer. I did not know that. He had various various things that he predicted. Some were wrong. Uh, he talked about like a whole, or maybe we just haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Flying cars, okay. maybe. Yeah, and under, underwater societies, oh. and people were like, nah, son. But but they let him make it on the advent of of <laughs> internet, and he predicted cable and mm. the um and that uh, cable TV. Cable TV. What about Hulu? <laughs> He pro- that's probably in there. Nobody can predict it. <laughs> or Netflix. Right, but, right, right. But yeah, that, that was his whole futurism and future shock is the, the new social norm of people adapting to sudden and abrupt change. You know, that's that's all I took from it. You know, I, I didn't know anything about this book or that author. I just, I, I thought, you know, it's isn't it the song that follows? Yeah, directly yeah. follows it's back to the world. So, number yeah. two. Right. So I just, I took that as like, you know, being caught up in a world that's changing really fast. Yeah. And now you got to think, like, in 1973, what they considered to be 
fast change, right. you know, was probably nothing compared to what we see now. But sure. I mean, if you put it in the context of the, you know, these guys coming back from the Vietnam war, I mean, they've been in suspended animation for how many years, yeah, right. you know, while they were gone. And, and, uh, but I think, I think also, if I remember right, like a lot of those lyrics were very cautionary. It's like, you, you know, we got to, you know, thinking about how to preserve the earth. Right. And, you know. And, Stop messing up the land. Right. Uh-huh. That, I mean, that in itself is, that's pretty prophetic. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So already right there, there was some sort of environmental consciousness happening, you know. We've got to stop Morgan pointed out what her fire truck was. What's your fire truck on this? Um, I, I have they they have different seasons with yeah, me. I you know, that, I, yeah. I, I, I the most honest way I can explain that. Yeah, yeah. You know, for a while, can't say nothing was my joint. Mm. Oh, interesting. Even though there's no real commentary there at all. Yeah. But I just thought the groove was so incredible. And for me as a performer, I'm like, and, and as a songwriter and artist, I'm like, how do you get away with <laughs> making this song that plays for a minute and a half, two minutes, before you even do any vocals on the track? And the first thing you say is, one time for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, that to me was the coldest shit ever. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it's the, it, like because I'm just seeing the band is doing their thing. You know, they're vamping on this groove or whatever. That's it. I'm like, that's the coldest shit ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was just so. I, that was the song that I loved the most. Yeah. You know, um, for a time. Yeah. And he was so understated about it. He was just so cool, you know. And that was just sort of hallmarks of his style. How about Sleeper Jams? What, what's this, what are the songs on here that either you didn't necessarily appreciate uh, the full extent when you first listened to it or just songs that have crept up on you over the years? Morgan? I think If I Were a Child Again yeah, was one agree. of the ones that I listened to um, in prep for the chat. Mm. And I thought, gosh, this is really pretty and sensitive yeah. and, and emotional. Yeah, yeah. Heard to me until just now. Is he singing his own backup? He's probably just overdubbing he it, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it comes in at really odd moments. You know, like it comes in. He, he'll he'll sing the Heavenly Father part while he's doing his verse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like overlapping over himself. Yeah, you know. Which when I hear uh, songs like that, it just from a technical standpoint, I, it, it's guys that are just going in and playing, and they're not really concerned about form necessarily or like you know, structure per se, you know, they want to, it's about the idea, you know, it's about the thought. 
But that, yeah, and that's another thing. His ballads are just year, yes. album after album after year over year. It's just his ballads are just incredible. You know, my my wife and I's wedding song was so in love. You do so many things with a smile and face. That's inc- it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. His and as uh, particularly like his horn arrangements are just crazy. If you listen to all the horns on any, like from like all, they're all so memorable. Right. You know, like all his his horn parts are just crazy. And the horns, yeah. I'm so in love. I mean, I I can hear it right yeah. in my head right now. Yeah, and that's that's a very good that's good wedding song. I'm gonna give you props for that. Right on. Yeah, yeah. like we still like we go oh when we hear that song. Like we hear that song, so we go oh you know. you know. I wanted to ask you because I wasn't familiar with this album until pr- preparation for this chat. But mm. do it all night. Were you familiar with that Curtis Mayfield album? That was like that was like was that his disco phase? Yeah, yeah like seventy seven <laughs> or seventy eight. I right? loved his disco phase. Did you? Yeah. Okay. I did. Uh, not every song was okay. awesome, right? But he had some great songs in there, like uh, "Tripping Out." Yes. That was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, some of the stuff with Linda Clifford, I thought, was really cool in that era. But was this on his same label? Because because I, I wanted to know why the departure. Because for he, me, that was like a, a. I think when I think at that time, I mean, you'd have to look it up, but it was it, at that time it became Kurtom slash something Arista. Else. Yeah, or I think, something. I think there was some involvement. I mean, it's not the Curtis Mayfield that most people think of, sure. I don't think. But I love some of that stuff too. Seventy eight. Seventy eight. Yeah. It was like Boogie. He did lots like he did like some boogie stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. It wasn't terrible. I just I just wasn't I just right. didn't know about it and I was just shocked. There's yeah. very few artists of at that level who were enormously successful in the early seventies who did not try to stay relevant during disco. Mm. And really the number of those artists who made good disco albums, you can probably count on like one hand with sure. two fingers. Like it was, mm. it was rough. It was yeah. rough out there for yeah. a lot of legends. <laughs> well, I mean, Sissy l- Houston made a disco album. I mean, that was rough. do yeah right you know i mean it's he he probably was like shit i made records in the 60s i right. made records in the 70s why can't i make yeah sure in the 80s? you know sure. does that mean there's a lyrics born trap album coming soon I could know. be okay i would do it all right i would totally do it i would try it you yeah. know i would totally try it you know i mean cert but the, the thing about curtis is with these records i mean he's very entrenched in the time period yeah. you know what yeah. i mean and so when when those things sort of pass and you know you you're, you're trying to move on to another style. Of course, you you have to learn another language. But I mean, he's such a masterful musician and songwriter. I mean, maybe it wasn't as believable coming from him that it, you know, like the disco stuff, right? But I I thought he had some great songs. I don't know how they charted or anything like that. Sure. I just know how yeah. I feel about listening to them now. You know, yeah. We're obviously veering a little bit off of this particular album, but since we've started this. I think I meant we might have talked about Sparkle in a previous episode, and Sparkle is actually a really good mid late seventies album. Yeah, and Curtis 
doing really fine craft and obviously working with Aretha for the official yeah. soundtrack. Mm. You know, I kind of feel like uh, Irene Cara got got kind of screwed on that one. Yeah, she, I mean, but how <laughs> do you... Because she could sing. She could. But she's also not Aretha. No, but, and no one, no one can nobody do... nobody is. No, nobody is. And, right, and, yeah. and her um, giving him something he can feel is just like, mm. oof. Speaking of ballads. Good Lord. Speaking of ballads. Oh yeah. Do you think this album is right on time, ahead of its time, or timeless? I don't like when people say shit is ahead of its time. You know, I, to me, that's, I have a problem with that when people say, oh, it was ahead of its time, you know, da, 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 da. And I mean, maybe certain albums are, but I think clearly when you listen to this record, he was capturing a certain moment in American history. Yeah. You know, so I think for its time, uh, I don't know that I of another album that uh, particularly the, the title track that really illustrates that moment mm. in history mm. as well as this song did, you know, because that this song does because it touches on so many things It and it's in chronological order. It's mm-hmm. just like any other story that's written. You know, it talks about, it alludes to what he was going through in Vietnam. Talks about him coming home and seeing his mother, you know. And then it talks about, after that, how he's observing the world and how it's changed, you know. Yeah. So it's like this, within six minutes or whatever, you see this, He's not, this character goes through, some, he goes through an arc, you know. And that's, that's, um. That's pretty remarkable for a song, you know, to to be able to ta- one song to be able to take you on a journey like that, you know. But it, but of course, the fact that we're talking about an album that's forty five years old, oh, man, that's crazy. Forty five years old. <laughs> I mean, how that's timeless to me, you know. Right. Forty five years old, you know. I mean, it's just crazy, man. If you had to describe this album in three words, what yeah. three words would you choose? Illuminating, mm. uh, insightful, mm-hmm. funky. Fair enough. Yep. That will do it for this delightful episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Lyrics Born. Can you share what you're working on now? Uh, well, I just dropped my 10th album yeah. uh, called Quite a Life, and that came out uh, in September. Uh, I'm currently, technically, I'm on tour right now. So if you go to lyricsborn.com and uh, all my socials, you can see all my dates. Uh, I'll be touring behind this album probably for the next, I've been touring for a couple months. I'll be on tour probably the next six or seven months behind this. Okay. Uh, you put in work, man. Really do. I do, man. Yeah. I gotta say, yeah. I gotta give it to myself. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Ah. Um, uh, let's see. Sorry to bother you is out now. That's actually on Hulu. Did uh, you think what's his name predicted that? Don't uh, know. What? <laughs> for, but, for listeners not yeah. li- just tuning in for for this 
aspect of it, uh, Tom is one of the people who's in uh, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. I saw yeah, it, though. Yeah. Good film. Very, yeah. very good film. And I just uh, I just recorded um, with Tune Yards. I just recorded the mm-hmm. score, mm-hmm. with, with uh, re-recorded the score with Tune Yards. Yeah. Um, I got a movie coming out on Netflix with uh, uh, Ali Wong and Randall Park and, and Keanu Reeves called All the Asians, my man, and the yeah. Hoppers. It's the Go Wave. <laughs> that'll, Shout out. That'll be out in April. And um, yeah, meanwhile, I'm, just, I'm writing songs and doing shows, man, like I always have. What are your socials? Can you let people know? Uh, at Lyrics Born on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook.com backslash Lyrics Born. Uh, and lyricsborn.com. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wang, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the future-shocked Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. We want to thank all of our five-star iTunes reviewers, the latest being from Hana Batake, who writes, this is the musical analysis I need in my life, unquote. And you know what we need? We need more five-star iTunes reviewers. Right. I think we've only had one since the last time. And if you have not had a chance to review us yet, please do, because it is a way for new listeners to find their merry way to us. Thank you so much for those. We also want to shout out our social media fan and family um, for supporting us on Twitter, specifically the following people this week. Briggy Smalls, one of the best <laughs> names in the game. Brigham Fisher. We want to shout out T. Dane. We also want to shout, listen, Jesse Thorne. Mm. El Jefe gave us a shout out. Thank you, Jesse. We want to thank Lickety Brindle. Okay, I hope I got that right. Jacoby81. We want to thank, as always, Simon Goring. Thank you so much. We also want to thank Polished Solid, D'Angelo at, D'Angela at Polished Solid, Lauren Fintoni, Billy Bay Valentine, love that, and also Peter McLennan. We do so appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies. Good to see you again, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. One last thing. Here is a teaser for next week's episode, which features writer Travell Anderson talking to us about the Dream Girls soundtrack. What makes this album a heat rock with you? Um, I think similarly to you, I was familiar with the Jennifer Holiday and the song. Um, and I knew that like Loretta Devine and Cheryl Lee Ralph were in the original um, Broadway play because they're just like black icons, yeah. right, in yeah. Hollywood. And so like I, I knew of that but had never seen it. And so when the movie came around, I was like, oh, this is this is this is the moment for my generation, right, <laughs> to yeah. absorb this. Um, and I was a fan, obviously, of Beyonce because she's Beyonce. <laughs> um, and then I was a fan of uh, Jennifer Hudson from American Idol. Yeah. And I, re- I just remember, I think it was the top six or top four or something like that. The bottom three was Fantasia, Jennifer Hudson, and Latoya London. Yeah. Um, and Jennifer Hudson went home. That and it was just like a, such a big deal because they were the three best singers. Yes. And so a year or so, a year, two years later, when it's like, oh, Jennifer Hudson is in this big movie, and I was like, oh, this this is good. This is like a moment. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.